HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Vivino. Discover and buy wines wherever you are. Visit vivino.com slash heritage to stock up. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the latest episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're counting down the days to the 4th of July, so this week's theme is independence. After all, we're an independent food radio station. HRN is a labor of love. Staff, hosts, and listeners all share the belief that storytelling can change the world, one bite or sound bite at a time. We take a moment to ponder our founding mothers and fathers, specifically what they were drinking during the Revolutionary War. Rum in various combinations with beer and cider would be the order of the day. We highlight a story of self-sufficiency on the island of Vieques, Puerto Rico. The biggest thing we did was to start a lot of fermented vegetables because we knew the first thing to go would be refrigerator trucks coming to the island. And we examine the challenges facing independent grocery stores across the U.S. The struggle is real, but the future looks bright. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat in 3, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. By 2020, we will have 10 billion mouths to feed in a world profoundly altered by environmental change, which of course begs the question, how are we going to do this? Joining me with the inside scoop on what factors need to be addressed in order to achieve global food security is Dr. Ken Foster. 
Ken is an award-winning professor of agricultural economics at Purdue, where he, teacher, where he teaches agricultural price analysis and applied time series analysis. He served as the head of the Department of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University from 2008 through 2017, and he is also the co-editor of the recently published book, How to Feed the World, available from Island Press. Ken, welcome to Eating Matters. Hey, Jen. Thank you very much for having me. Um, okay, so I can you just before we start applied time series analysis? I don't even know <laughs> what is that. <laughs> Am I supposed to know that? <laughs> do, you, do you really want to bore your uh, your, yes. your listeners with with that? Absolutely. Uh, okay. Uh, well, um, so um, economists have this uh, problem. It's very difficult for us to ethically experiment on people to understand economic behavior. So. Often we have to use secondary data from different sources, mm-hmm. and um, and because we can't repeat, you know, the same history over and over, um, you know, 2018 is going to only happen once. Uh, we tend to use data over a long history of time to understand a variety of things: some behavioral, some how markets uh, evolve over time, mm-hmm. and uh, and that data has some unique statistical properties from the point of view of doing um, research and analysis of, of the data and the economic forces that created the data. Mm-hmm. So what I, what I try to teach the students is uh, some of those nuances, but also some of the practical aspects of using that kind of secondary data that's collected over time to do economic analyses. And why did you choose to pursue the, this field? Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, agricultural economics yes. or agriculture in general? Both. Because well, well, you were a I'll farmer as well, with, right? Yeah, so, so I, grew, I grew up on a farm. Um, so my father was a farmer. My grandparents were farmers. And I don't know how many generations back were farmers. So um, I think agriculture was, um, yeah, maybe it's genetic. Maybe I'm drawn to <laughs> agriculture. It's something I knew. I, I love to grow things. And um, if I don't have a garden or, you know, something growing, I feel, you know, uh, a little, a little out of sorts. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so when I went to university and, you know, I tried a, a number of different things and kept, kept finding myself circling back to agriculture and particularly, um, agronomy and things like that. And then I spent three years in the Peace Corps in Central America and that, Help me understand maybe a little bit better how important economics and policy are in the in the context of agriculture. That you know, okay, it's great if you can grow things. It's it's great if you can develop and apply new technologies to improve growing things. But if markets don't exist, or if policies are are poorly designed to you know create space for those those great technologies to thrive, then the technologies don't solve the problem. And, um, you know, I saw some of that firsthand, I guess, in my experiences in Central America. And when I came back to the United States, I um, I went to graduate school in agricultural economics. And one thing led to another. That's that's how I ended up where I'm at. And how did your own experience as both a farmer and an agricultural um, economist, I mean, I can't even (laughs) say the words. Um, how did your experience um, in both of these roles uh, shape how you wrote the book and, and why? 
you decided to do so. Um, yeah, you know, that's interesting because I don't know that I would have I would have said things related to food security were important mm-hmm. to me until I wrote this book. That those were, you know, probably back in the back of my mind they were, but that, you know, wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go feed the world sort of motivation for for my career. Um, but I did grow up in an environment with a father who had been a child of the Depression, and we didn't waste anything. We spent rainy Saturdays straightening nails, and, mm. uh, you know, we grew a lot of the food that we ate. Um, and so, um, yeah, you know, he, he told us stories about the Depression and, um, and you know, people being too poor to buy a whole potato, so his father would sell half a potato, and that created a problem because that meant they had to eat a lot of potatoes because, mm-hmm. you know, once you cut the potato, it has to be eaten. Um, but um, so, so you know, thinking back on my childhood and different things, and some of that comes out in the book, I think, um, and some of the stories that that I used to make some points. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, I think some of those experiences, um, and then I think uh, the experiences that I've had working in developing countries and seeing firsthand um, how how hard people work um, to put food on their table. You know, we, we're so fortunate here in the United States, most of us. I mean, that there are there are people in our own country who, who you know, they have they have food, but it's not well balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, they have calories. In parts of the world, yeah, yeah, they have calories, and you know, and but they don't have a well balanced diet. And in other parts of the world, simply don't have food. I mean, so I just came back from Colombia. Um, Colombia is a great country. It's beautiful place, beautiful people, wonderful people, but but tremendous dis, uh, disparity in income. And so it's everything from, you know, people who live, um, you know, the way we live here and have access to the same types of food that we have here to, you know, people who eat literally from the garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, when, you, when you've been places like that and you've seen that, you know, these are good, hardworking people, but, um, you know, food's just not available or it's not affordable for them. And and so that makes you start to think, boy, um, we need to, we need to focus more on this topic. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, you know, Jessica and I were working together and Jessica Z, your co-editor. Project. Yeah. Jessica I is my, mm-hmm. my co-editor. Um, we're working together in, in, at Purdue and uh, and we wanted to do some sort of grand project that demonstrated the capacity for you know for scientists to speak to this um, to this subject because so much of what we read is it's driven by people's motives underlying mm-hmm. motives not necessarily you know I want to I want to solve this problem but more I have I have some other issues that I'm axes that I'm grinding and and they relate to this subject, and um, and we felt like the the history and um, uh, of of the land grant university and, and extension mm-hmm. in land grant universities, where you know we produce um, information unbiased by by any of that other stuff going on. Right? I mean, our goal is is really let's take our science. And let's turn it into practical knowledge for real people. Yeah. And and we've been very good at doing that for farmers, um, and, and you know, and, and engineers and people in in those pursuits. Mm-hmm. But we really haven't spent a lot of time doing that for the broader 
the broader society. And so that was our goal when we wrote this book was, can we take the science that is, is in the, the heads of, of all of these people at Purdue that know all the stuff, and can we put it into a way that, that everybody can get access to it? Not, yeah. you know, not just farmers, not just, you know, extension clients, but everybody. And that, so that was the goal of the book. And it- and, and that, and that was a big part of the motivation to write this book. And it's a wonderful, you know, primer. It's written in a way that I think, you know, you, you handle super complex topics. And um, and just so the reader or the listeners know, it's broken into, what, like 12 different chapters, 12 different issue areas. You've got, um, you know, 17 or so different experts who write each chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, it's really well done because it's obviously, um, you know, hard to, to kind of make these issues... Uh, e- easy to understand um, exactly, for kind of yeah. like and so, the lay person. Yeah. It's so often, so often when we're writing at the university, we're writing for each other, unfortunately, yeah. and we write highly technical and, and we write in a the ivory you know, tower. We, we want to get, we want to get to the front frontier of the literature, you know, and, and, yeah. um, you know, so, so just to be clear, nobody's going to learn how to do gene splicing or anything <laughs> like that from this book. Right. I mean, this mm-hmm. is not, that's not that wasn't our goal. Our goal really was, you know, can we get it down to, you know, the level um of a high school or an entry level college mm-hmm. student, um, in terms of, you know, the appeal and the and the level of knowledge. And you're right. I mean if you want if you really want to know these subjects in great detail, you're gonna to have to go read some other things, but it's a great place to begin. Yeah. In fact one of the things we're working on now with the um, educational specialist is developing a high school curriculum. Oh, that's with wonderful. The idea that, that that's something that we're going to do at Purdue, and we're going to make that free to high school teachers who might want to build a course around the book or use, you know, just parts of it. Yeah. You know, maybe they're teaching something and they want to focus on the issues related to water, so they can pull out the curriculum for the water mm-hmm. chapter and use that, use that. Um, as some supplemental material or the basis for that section of their course. So that's wonderful. Um, okay. So the book in terms of the topics, um, you know, we could obviously do a deep dive and on all of them and the fascinating and all interrelated, um, clearly. So the ones I want to kind of focus on today are, there are three of them and they are, you know, their population, population growth, um, technology and innovation, and then tr- international trade. Um, and, okay. you know, in terms of population, it seems like this was kind of like an under, like in the underpinning of the book, kind of the impetus in maybe deciding to write this in the first place in terms of, you know, just simply put, are we going to be able to feed all of these people in, um, you know, a decade or two? Yeah, so, right. I mean, you know, you know the, the land, water... You know, all of those natural resources that we need to produce food, those are all fixed, right? There's no, we're not making any more of, of that sort of thing. In fact, you know, we're, we're, we're degrading or repu- repurposing, um, in many cases, um, water and land to other uses. So at the same time, the population's growing, and that's where the tension comes from. So, you know, population, we're declining at the same time that we're, you know, turning farmland into subdivisions or factories or whatever and, and using water for other uses besides agriculture. Okay, well, that, that might be sustainable, but um, but the train wreck really comes from the fact that we've got these finite resources mm-hmm. and this growing growing demand. Um, and and now it's driven by population, and I think the other thing, and it comes through in the trade chapter, but there's not a chapter about it is income. I mean, that's uh, 
turns out right now, uh, for the last you know decade more or less, um, the real driving force behind uh, growing food demand is income. And, uh, in and some places in the world, population continues to grow. You know, if you go to parts of Africa and parts of Asia, uh, population continues to grow in the, most of the developed world. It's flatlining um, or de- declining. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of flatlining, yeah. yeah. And, you know, to the extent our population has been growing here in the United States, um, very much is dependent on immigration. Yep. Um, so so <laughs> income and population, those are, the, those are kind of the two things that are – that are putting us in this pincher. Um, and you know what? I just, I was saying 2020, um, 10 billion by 2020. That's not, that's, it's actually 2050. Oh yeah, 2050, yeah. yeah <laughs> I was jumping, and, you know, I was jumping whether, the gun. We get to, you know, whether we get to 10 billion or, you know, some other number, um, you know, I mean, if you take it out to 2100, the range of projections is everywhere from 7 billion to 20 billion. But, um, but we know it's going to be more people than we have now. Twenty billion, and, and we know that, and we know that it's going to put, um, and we know that it's going to put pressure on the food system to deliver. And so this has been, you know, this has been something, um, you know, like a long-standing concern. There've been dire warnings about this um, historically yeah. in terms of like we're going to run out of food, um, but yet so far, you know, knock on wood. <laughs> we we haven't, yeah. and that is due to some major agricultural revolutions. So, um, can you kind of give us a, a, a brief overview? There are what have been like three uh, to date. Yeah, well, I guess it I guess it depends on how you define a revolution. Right. But, you know, I think in the, I think in the book, uh, my colleague Uris Baldos um, talks about three. He talked about the period of time when when people moved from hunting and gathering and started to collect in cities and so you know there was some beginnings of specialization of labor and some people you know became farmers and some people became i don't know you know made tools or whatever right mm-hmm. and so that was sort of a first a first breakthrough um in terms of of a shift from mankind with respect to how we get food mm-hmm. um and then uh and then you know you kind of hinted at this whole period of of, of Robert Malthus, who, you know, predicted the end of mankind because we were going to run out of food because population is growing and we're, that's, you know, 1700s. And, and, you know, what happens is, well, we're still worried we, about we, it. <laughs> yeah, we're still worried about it, but you know, it didn't, it didn't end the way he said it would. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, people like Darwin and Mendel who, who unlocked the keys of, of, uh, things like genetics, um, so that we understood how to, uh, make more rapid improvements in productivity from, you know, manipulating plants through breeding and selection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, things like mechanization that came along. And I, some of that was, you know, animal draft, but it was, you know, pulling iron instead of, you know, pulling wood. And um, and then I think, uh, you know, we, we should make sure we give some, some credit to the idea of commercialization, you know, in the in that period of time, you know, the, the idea of shipping things around, trains came along so we could start to ship things. We got into, you know, cross-ocean shipping and um, uh, products. So commercialization created value-adding opportunities, I guess, for farmers mm-hmm. um, that allowed them to invest back in these new technologies. And, and you know, in, in the late 1800s, the United States had this great idea of land-grant universities. Let's Let's... Let's have a university in every state that has a, a mission that's related to discovering and uh, teaching. 
um, food production technologies. Is so, it- so that second revolution really was, you know, sort of the first wave of of technologies of, you know, increasing planting densities and weed control and, um, you know, seed improvements and things like that. And then the, by the way, are there still land grants in in every single state, land grant universities Uh, in every single state? Yep. Yeah, there are. Yeah. And in some states, uh, because uh, at a later date, there were established in some states, um, uh, some some land-grant universities for black students before integration, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, So some states actually have essentially two land-grant universities. Mm. So North Carolina Carolina would be an example. North Carolina State and North Carolina A&T. Okay. Um, So... Um, so, yeah. Okay, so then, so we talked about the you know first, second, and then the third is right. is the the quote unquote green revolution. Yeah, but, it's kind of you know that's that's the name that's been kind of given to this post World War II period where um, you know we discovered hybridization at least of some crops that that increased yields dramatically and um, fertilization, um, of course, pesticides. Um, you know, so the so we call we call it a green revolution, but not not because it was ecologically green, because it was greener green, you know, and the, it produced more greenery. Uh, I guess, I, yeah, I, that's that's my impression anyway. But you know, it really it really came again at a time where, especially in in um, developing countries. So you know, we we started to see it in the United States and places like Western Europe in the 40s and 50s. But you know, these technologies took decades to start to show up in places um, in other parts of the world where, um, you know, access to technologies and education and so forth were maybe a little bit less. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the example uh, I think that Uris uh, quotes in his book was uh, related to, to Mexico and um, in, in, the, in the period between 1940 and 1965, Mexican agricultural yields increased by fourfold. Wow. Um, so... So, you know, a hungry world, um, a period, again, of growing income, but also growing population, um, uh, lots of concerns about malnutrition and starvation in, in the developing part of the world. And so, so I understand that, that, you know, the green revolution has become almost a dirty word mm-hmm. um, these days because it brought with it pesticides and and fertilizer runoff and and some of those environmental consequences but for the people um who lived through it in many parts of the world it was it was um salvation right i mean it was it was life or death yeah and so it's really it's really hard to it's really hard hard for me to you know get angry about the green revolution now it's created some problems and those are problems that that um, you know, those are part of the challenge I think that we face. Is okay, growing population. Oh, well, should we just dump more pesticides and more fertilizer out there and increase the the yields and you know keep plowing ahead? Well, no, because um, if we do that, we're going to destroy the environment. And okay, we might have plenty to eat for a while, but eventually. Um, we're still going to run out of food. Us. <laughs> we're going to have no yeah, water. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to run out of water, clean water, and, you know, clean air and clean everything else. And so, um, so you know, but there's, you know, there's a lot of, there, there really are a lot of, of, of neat things going on today um, that that kind of knock your socks off when you, when you start looking at these technologies. We're starting yeah. to understand the soil microbiome more and how 
how plants interact with fungi and viruses and bacteria in the soil mm-hmm. to capture nutrients more efficiently, um, uh, to control pests. So all these biocontrols and, and uh, biofertilizers and um, nanotech technologies that help us. Um, I mean, that's, that, that will be, I think, the next agricultural revolution, that we, we just understand how better to manage the, the soil environment to favor all of these natural or biocontrols um, and the field environment so- and help us move away from from pesticides and and reduce the amount of fertilizer that we put on and, and we probably should show, we should probably should should throw uh, genetic engineering into that. Oh yeah, we're going to um, talk about that, that list. Yeah, we're definitely yeah. going to talk about that. So okay, so the so the you know green revolution it made food more abundant and affordable, and then the but then you know but then the downside was that it um, you know it kind of increased the use of pesticides, fertilizers, which by the way, you, and I've read this before, but this was also pointed out in the book, which I was really happy about. Um, they said, you know, it's not just about, you know, fertilizers that are kind of put, you know, used for the agricultural system. It's also what we as Americans use on our lawns. Um, and uh, like it's just an enormous, what was it like 63,000 square miles of Texas are dedicated to lawns and I'm like, stop. Well, we shouldn't have lawns in every part of the country. (laughs) Well, or, 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 or let's, let's do, let's do what, uh, um, you know, sort of what farmers do. Let's start, you know, let's start using the symbiosis between plants, you know, let the clover live in your yard and fix the nitrogen for you. Um, instead of, you know, that, so, so you mentioned I'm a farmer. I'm a bee farmer. I'm a honey. I'm a honey farmer. And and the, one of the things that I hate the most is the the person who comes to me and goes, "Oh, it's so sad. What's happening to the bees?" Yeah. And then when I ask him, I go, "Well, you know, do you have a yard? Yeah. Do you do you have any? Fl- oh, yeah. Well, we got a few flowers and some you know flower beds." And I go, "Yeah, but in your yard, do you have like dandelions and clover? Oh no, we we." We use this fertilizer that kills us. I'm like, yeah, yeah come on. Are, are you sad about the bees? <laughs> help, help out the bees. So, you know, uh, if everybody would just let that white, that beautiful white clover bloom in their, in their lawns, it would be great habitat for the bees, and they wouldn't need as much nitrogen for their, for their grass to stay green. So, so yeah, and then, and then also, you know, remember that um, most of those lawns that are getting fertilized are right next to concrete. So when the water runs off of those lawns, carrying those nutrients from 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 the from the lawn, it goes straight down into the into the gutter and uh, into the storm sewer and eventually into the water. So it's it's even worse than agricultural runoff, where usually there's some trees or grass or something between the field and the and the water to huh. infiltrate. I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was worse. That is, that makes perfect sense. And is oh yeah, no, it should just run and it comes off your yard, hits the yeah. sidewalk or the street, and shoot down it goes. Right. I mean, there's no, there's nothing there Barrier. to slow it down or absorb it or anything. Yeah. So the other, so, yeah. so 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 stop, so stop using fertilizers on your lawn, people, and oh, and even well, I don't know. I just think at, that, least, at least stop using that weed and feed stuff. Right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's our you know one of many soapboxes that I'm probably going to get on today. Um, yeah. the, the other thing, though, you know, the other downside was the that it it lowered food prices. Right. This this kind of third revolution 
which had sure. a, you know, does that, do you think that that had like a long term effect on wages for farmers? I mean, this is still something that farmers still operate on razor thin margins. Did this kind of right. yeah. usher that in? It's, it's a, that's a, that's that. Farmers are in a tough uh, in a tough position with respect to new technologies. Um, uh, it's those new technologies rarely end up um, well. You know, they lower their costs, and that's about it, right? Mm-hmm. But but because because you know everybody's using them, um, everybody has access to them, uh, and the, the, just the way the market is. I mean. Prices come down to to meet that in in real terms, right? I mean, mm-hmm. prices don't come down. I want consumers going. I pay more today than I did last year. Yeah. Um, but but you know, accounting for inflation and everything else. I mean, yeah, you know, farm margins are are pretty resiliently small. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it wasn't too many years ago. Farmers were here at least here in the Midwest. Um, farm profits were very robust. Um, and it didn't last very long. Now farmers here in the Midwest are um, are struggling again, and a lot of it has to do with exactly as you're saying. I mean, we went through this period of time, and you'll remember there was you know a drought and some other things went on. We we shifted a lot of corn production to ethanol, and it took a few years for the world to catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, and and but once it did, what happened? Well, prices fell, uh, costs rose. You know, the cost of land increased, the cost of other inputs, labor, fuel, and everything else increased for the farmers and to the point where basically the profit margins are back to razor thin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm not sure there's a lot that we can do about that, at least in the commodity context mm-hmm. of, of agriculture. Um, so, you know, how do you, how do you solve that problem? Maybe, maybe you know, try to add value. Well, it's really hard to add a lot of value on the farm. Historically, how farms here in the Midwest, corn and soybean farmers, added value to what they produced, they did it through livestock and poultry. Um, Adding so, value meaning meaning producing yeah. something else or, or you know, yeah. what is an example Yeah, well, of I, I, I use the corn that I grow as feed to feed livestock mm-hmm. or poultry, mm-hmm. and then I sell those, and, that, and historically, uh, that has been a fairly on average, good value-adding proposition. It's getting it's getting more difficult now because those industries have moved to a, um, a different, I guess, market structure environment. There's a lot more mega farms. I hate that term, but I'll use it. Mm-hmm. That um, make it difficult for the average family farm to remain competitive technologically in in producing um, livestock and poultry, particularly uh, pigs and and chickens and turkeys. And so most of the farmers now uh, farm on some sort of contract. Um, yeah. And so you know, they on average they well they they they, they, they it's the contracts aren't bad. Uh, the farmers make money, um, but you know they they don't they don't face the volatility of markets, but they also don't face that risk. They also don't receive the risk premium from facing that volatility and. And that was part of the value adding, I think, to to feeding their their products. I mean, uh, some of us do this on a small scale, and 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 we do okay. Um, but you know, I can't make a living um, producing honey, so 
Um, so it's, it's more of a hobby than a, than a than a living. So it's very difficult. I mean, to to produce enough stuff to produce an income, uh, you have to be really focused on producing. So you know, the farmers in in the area where I live, mm-hmm. five six thousand acres of corn and soybeans is not uncommon. Um, that's a lot of work. And then to tell them, well, you know, you should grow something else. It takes more labor and more machinery, and then and then you should process it in some way to add value and. And that takes a whole other set of skills. It's just a very difficult proposition. Um, so we, um, okay, so you mentioned before um, in terms of just, you know, technology to kind of shift gears here, um, genetic modification. The USDA uh, recently, they um, published the long-awaited proposed rule to establish labeling standards, but the rule won't be finalized. It's supposed to, I think, be finalized end of the month. It's Purdue um, already said that's not going to happen. It's going to happen, I don't know, he was like sometime later. <laughs> so yeah. whatever. I mean, it's it's like, I guess it's um, imminent. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess like, can you just give us it's been it's been totally vilified, right? This is an issue for some reason. Food advocates have totally, you know, have really gotten behind, and they want labeling, and they're very anti-GMO. Um, but you know, it's really nothing more than a technology, right? I mean, can you? And it, it could, it has benefits for how it can be used. So, can you maybe just like give us a a brief overview about you know what a genetically modified organism is? How is it currently used? And and you know what are the possible benefits? Um, from from using this technology in a different way. Sure. Um, so let me preface this by saying I'm an economist. I'm not a I'm not a geneticist. So um, all the geneticists out there, forgive me if I say something really stupid with respect to genetic modification and genetic engineering. And um, you know, uh, but but basically it it has to do um, um, with a couple of things. I mean, genetic modification has historically been taking um, a gene that is desirable in some way. Maybe it, uh, maybe it, um, it, it pervades uh, resistance to a herbicide um, that farmers want to use, or it has um, one, one of the, one of the most famous is the Bacillus thuringiensis um, bacteria toxin. So they took the, the gene from this, this um, bacteria that produces a toxin that's toxic to um, caterpillars, and they put it into some plants that are attacked by um, by caterpillars, and and so that plant then expresses and produces that toxin and and kills the and kills the caterpillars. Um, I, so um, that that's genetic modification. Okay. Um, some of the things that people are working on today with with you know, gene editing and, and things like that have to do um, sometimes with with introducing new genes to plants, but also working to turn on or turn off certain genes that are already in the plant to benefit the plant either through improved growth or through, through improved uh, nutrient utilization or things like that. So, so there's a whole array of things that people are working on. Um, but, you know, the, the one that gets... Uh, um, vilified the most, of course, is the Roundup Ready soybean or corn or whatever crop you want to choose that has the gene that's been spliced in that makes it resistant to the Roundup herbicide. Um, and, um, you know, I, I know uh, 
there there are mixed points of view about Roundup in 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 the discussion today. Um, but if you dial back the clock, um, not too many years ago, we were talking about um, herbicides being used on corn that were extremely persistent in um, in the environment. I mean, for years, persistent in the environment, were causing um, deformities in in amphibians and and things like that. So. Um, showing up in in fatty tissue of humans, um, and from after many years of after exposure, and today you know we've basically not completely eliminated those from production from use, but but dramatically eliminated them and, and traded them for Roundup, which is a is a chemical that's that is very short lived in the environment, breaks down very rapidly, mm-hmm. um, and and you know nobody yet has definitively been able to show any adverse not saying that there won't be um but uh but today nobody has been able to show any ad extremely adverse effects of those in a in a way that the scientific community has been willing to buy into in a large in a large way so so you know environmentally that sounds like at least for now it sounds like a real win Mm -hmm. um that that we've taken some really bad stuff out of the environment um, and replaced it with something that is at least appears not to be nearly as bad. Something um, tells me, and, something, and you know, so yeah. the, the 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 tricky part of these things is managing um, is managing resistance. So you know, we're already seeing resistance to the the Silus thuringiensis uh, toxin. We see resistance in weeds to Roundup, and so we're on this sort of technology treadmill where okay, now we got to go find another one. And so now you'll now you, if you go around the countryside, you'll see some people growing some crops that are now have been uh, genetically modified to be resistant to um, to other herbicides. And um, so so you know the, 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 it, it strikes me as that kind of genetic modification um, maybe our short term gains, but genetic modifications that can enhance the nutrient value of a of a food, um, you know, for example, um, beta carotene mm-hmm. is, is a good example. So, so in the developing world, um, somewhere like six hundred, six hundred people or children, I think, uh, have blindness issues because of a diet that is insufficient in vitamin A. So, if we can do something that enhances the vitamin A content. Um, of of rice or corn or bull mm-hmm. that could that could solve a serious problem and then children dying i mean hundreds yeah. of thousands of children around the world dying from beta keratin deficiencies um every year and so so that seems that seems like the sort of thing that's a real game changer to me is things that enhance um uh enhance nutritional quality and that's food. done through genetic uh, engineering can be. Um, I mm-hmm. mean, there are high beta keratin varieties of corn and rice out there that were that are natural um, uh, mutants. Mm-hmm. Um, the difficulty the difficulty with those is that they tend not to be very high yielding. Okay. And so, so with the, the thing about genetic modification is really not. If you'll let yourself think broadly, it's really not that different than what people have been doing for thousands of years with selection and breeding, right? I mean, we saw a trait in, in, in a crop that was desirable. 
okay, let's take the seeds of that crop and let's plant those again and see if it does that again. And let's keep doing it and let's keep selecting. Let's keep selecting for the corn with the bigger ear, with more rows or with more kernels or with, with that's more yellow, that's got more keratin or mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. And what we're, you know, that takes, that takes many, many years to make appreciable project progress. And, and so what scientists today are doing, they're looking out there saying, look at that, look at that trait. If we can have that trait in, in our, in our hybrid corn that is high producing, wouldn't that be wonderful? And so they're taking that, they're taking that gene that produces higher keratin and they're putting it in to the high yield variety. And so now we're getting the best of but we're getting it very quickly. It's not taking us, you know, years to get there. Right. Okay, we're going to have to take a really quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors, but when we get back, I want to talk about um, what is arguably the biggest threat to feeding our world today. Stay tuned. visiting the in-laws this weekend. They've asked you to bring wine. You need a bottle that says, I'm laid back enough that I didn't think about this choice for hours. But also, I've graduated from Two Buck Chuck, proving I can provide for your daughter and our future children. Where to go from here? Just ask Vivino. Vivino knows feeling pressured in the wine aisle can sour the whole experience. But with the largest wine inventory, Vivino gives you the best price on personalized picks based on your taste profile, then ships them right to your door. Scan wines, compare reviews, save your favorites, and even get unlimited free shipping with Vivino Premium, plus a free 30-day trial. So, when that next visit rolls around, you know exactly what that dry Alsatian Riesling says about your commitment to your mother-in-law's Sunday roast. Visit vivino.com heritage to stock up. Vivino. Wine made easy. And we're back with Dr. Ken Foster, co-editor of the book, How to Feed the World, uh, where today we're talking about how to feed the world and achieve achieve, um, global food security. Okay, so before I kind of, you know, I I stole this one from you, uh, Ken, but we talked about what is the, um, you know, what could the biggest threat to um, feeding the world today is, and um, you have said in the past that right now, at least, it is our international trade policy. So, you know, why, A, do you still believe this, and, and B, like, why do you think this is so? Yeah, I, I I absolutely think that it's a huge threat to um, food affordability around the world. Um, so so lots of things about trade, and and you know what, what we know is we know uh, economically, economy um, is is improved by by trade. Um, and if that if that weren't so, we wouldn't see so much exchange going on. Look, we are, we're all specializing. I mean, I'm specialized as a professor in agricultural economics. You're specialized as a journalist, mm-hmm. um, and we do our jobs and we get our pay and we go to the store and we buy our food. And the store bought the food from from somebody who processed it, and that processor bought it from from some farmer who specialized in processing. All that's all trade. 
I mean, it's not international trade. Most of it's happening within our country, but but it's not that different. Mm-hmm. And and all of those all of those specializations allow us um, to focus on doing more of what we're best at, um, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so if we think about this now, okay, countries trading, right? It's sort of you know abstract away from us as people or individual business, but countries trading. Um, so why does that happen? It happens because um, there's this country called the United States that was endowed with this incredible uh, soil and climate for growing um, crops and, and, and certain livestock. And then there are these other parts of the world that are endowed with a climate that allows them to grow this wonderful thing called coffee with their high mountains. And, and, what, and then there's another part of the world because you know, where they're located in their climate, they're allowed to grow, you know, these delicious fruits, bananas and pineapples and things like that. Mm-hmm. And and so so trade um, trade allows us to indirectly, I mean, we use currency, but indirectly trade with each other what we're good at producing um, to, to eventually build, you know, the diet that we want um, or... Um, the diet that's good for us, hopefully. How, I mean, how much food do we currently export and where does it go? Where do most of the crops go? Yeah, so, um, so, so we missed to talk about value really quantity. Um, so in, uh, I think 2017, the U.S. export about $145 billion worth of food products. The rest of the world and China was, was our one. Recipient: China, Canada, Mexico, Japan, uh, the EU. Um, those are the those are the top five. Okay. Um, and uh, and the and the China number doesn't include Hong Kong or Taiwan. Those actually come in about seven and eight, I think, um, um, themselves. So so if you think about Asia in general, uh, South Korea is, is a large uh, recipient of U.S. products. Um, it runs a 20, 20 billion plus dollar surplus. Um, that meaning that we export over twenty billion dollars more in food than we than we import. Um, so so absolutely, I mean, what's going on now? It's gonna it's gonna be a real struggle for the farmers in the United States. A couple of my colleagues uh, here at Purdue, Wally Tyner and Farsad Taharpur, um, actually it was before it was before yesterday when or before Friday when the uh, when the tariffs from China when went we into when we got they, into a trade war with China. Yeah, that, that's fun. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, but they had they estimated. Uh, um, I think they looked at a thirty percent tariff. I think what was actually implemented by China was twenty five percent on soybeans. So soybeans alone um, had the had the potential to create a, a three point three billion dollar loss to uh, U.S. soybean farmers. So, so it's a it's you know it's a huge uh, it's a huge amount of farm income. Uh, you know, we'll export some of those to some other places, but mm-hmm. we'll have to do it at lower prices um, because, obviously, if China was buying those in the past, China must have been um, the superior market. Right. So, um, so, so, but you know, back to your original question. Your original question wasn't about how farmers would be affected, but but how people would be affected, and I and I think it's really it has to do with diminished access to affordable. Um, quality food. Um, 
And, that, and I think that's the real issue. But we don't really export food food, do we? I mean, primarily in terms of our commodity crops. I mean, I don't, yeah, so don't we export a it, lot of like corn for ethanol and um, other kind of non-edible uh, varieties of commodities? We, we export a lot of corn and soybeans, uh, much of which goes into animal feed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we export... Uh, we export um, uh, meat, um, which goes directly into high-quality diets um, in other parts of the world. And, okay, so um, you say, well, gee, um, do they have to eat meat from the United States? No. Um, no, they don't. But, obviously, if they're going to get meat from somewhere else, then it's going to be more expensive. Because, remember, under free trade, what happened? Under free trade, everybody produced what they were best at producing right they they took advantage of their comparative advantages Mm -hmm. and so that meant that meant food prices were cheaper for people around the world Um, when you start to put tariffs on uh, and you put tariffs selectively on certain countries not on everybody then what happens well that forces you to go buy it from the next best person if you don't have a tariff on that on them whose prices are higher okay Um, and at all and at all that all flows down into, okay, well, if the prices are higher, then the access is lower, um, and, and that means that somebody at the bottom of that ladder um, has less access to food. And what about for farmers specifically? You know, if we take this kind of, um, you know, if we talk specifically about the, uh, you know, what's going on with China and the repercussions for, let's just use the example of soybean farmers, because the you know, the American Soybean Association has been particularly vocal about the unintended or the, the negative repercussions for for their um, farmers. What, you know, what will that look like for them? I mean, it's also interesting to me that farmers and, and people from the, you know, from rural areas overwhelmingly supported Trump. So um, a separate, you know, separate related question is, I mean, will will their support for him change? Because it seems like these policies will have a direct negative um, effect on on their livelihood. Um, yeah. So uh, so obviously, you know, I quoted the the statistic from the study that was done here at Purdue. Um, you know, substantial decline for soybean farmers. It's it's not. I don't. I don't think there's a great time for soybean farmers for something like this to happen. But it's but it's not an ideal time in the sense that the crop was already planted. Okay. Um, so, so if farmers had known that uh, China was going to have a 25% tariff on soybeans uh, from the U.S., they might have planted fewer soybeans this year, and they probably will plant fewer soybeans in the future, assuming that this continues into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the short in the short run, obviously they're you know they're going to take lower prices for what they what they produce. Um, I think they're hoping for a, a great crop. Um, I, I haven't talked to a lot of farmers about this. Um, you know, and I know a few. I've heard a few, um, a few of my farmer friends who were heavily involved in historically in developing trade deals for things like soybeans and pork, and helping to to foster improved international trade and agriculture are, are very unhappy with the way things are going. Mm-hmm. Um, I, re- I read stories in the news where farmers are quoted, and many of them believe that 
that somehow this will work out in an improve. Yeah, yeah. This will, this, somehow we're 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 going to do this, and then we're going to we're going to force everybody to um, into into a better deal for this, uh, into into a better deal for U.S. farmers, and 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 uh, you know I'm I'm hard pressed to imagine a better deal for U.S. farmers in the current environment, and I and I think a lot of people who believe this are sort of stuck in the 1970s um, mentality of U.S. agriculture, where the U.S. was very much a dominant player in the world markets for, particularly for grain commodities. Um, And what the United States did um, tremendously affected everybody else. And so we could kind of, we could kind of, you know, drive the deal. Right. Um, because, you know, because we were the only supplier, the only big supplier in the world. And that's not the case anymore. Um, South America has caught up. Um, uh, other parts of the world are catching up. And uh, and so today, a country like China that has historically imported from us, primarily because we're still very much low-cost suppliers, some of that comes from our efficiency of logistics and some of it comes from our um you know the blessings of our great soil and our great farmers mm-hmm. um but uh but these other countries have caught up and so china in a sense doesn't need uh to buy from the u.s as much as they do i mean they can they can secure it from somewhere else now can, can the chinese economy can the world economy can the u.s economy sustain this trade war for how long i don't know um but uh, but I feel like uh, the Chinese are not going to back down back down easily, mm-hmm. um, and um, because everybody knows that you know the first one to back down is in a very weak bargaining position, um, then on into the future. Yeah. So uh, so so I don't I don't anticipate um, I don't anticipate resolution to this anytime soon, and I anticipate that the Chinese will move most of their uh, purchases of soybeans and uh, to to South America. So well, okay, so we we have you know thirty seconds left, but in the in the remaining okay. time, can you leave us with a glimmer of hope? <laughs> Not necessarily with regard to um, you know to our international yes, trade policy, yeah. but just in general I, I, for our our capability. Okay, all right. Actually, I can, I, I can. I mean, because look, how many times has mankind faced these sort of like, oh my God, what are we going to do? This is so awful, and 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 you know. Uh, the American farmer and the far- farmers around the world are incredibly um, resourceful people, mm-hmm. resilient people, capable people, um, and uh, they will find a way. Um, right. You know, uh, trade deals or no trade deals, uh, increasing incomes, increasing populations, uh, climate change, all of these things. Um, I really, I really believe in in the ability of mankind's ingenuity and, and ability. Uh, right. To solve problems, I mean, I, we've proven many times in the history of of our species that we can solve problems, and so I believe we will solve this problem. And I hope our book um, helps us do that. Absolutely. So, where and with that, where can our listeners find your book? Um, well, they can find it uh, at Island Press at their website, and they can also uh, find it on Amazon. Wonderful. 
All right, uh, Ken, well, we have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and um, oh. talking about this awesome topic. Yeah, thank you, Jen. I really had a great time. All I appreciate right. you uh, including us in your program. Absolutely, and um, I highly, highly encourage everybody to go out and get a copy of this book. It is a f- fabulous read, incredibly informative, and um, just a really engaging, engaging read. So thank you so much, Ken. All right. Thank you, Jen. Have a great day. You too. Okay. I want to give a big thanks also to our sponsors for their generous support. Um, Also, big thanks to our engineer, Matt Patterson. Show music is by Tim Archer. And all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Lee Ute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.